There may be many reasons for a patient to consider elective aesthetic surgery, but whatever the reason, they are often linked to the patient's expectations for the surgical outcome. Most maintain a reasonable outlook for their care, but for those with unrealistic expectations, how can we work to maintain an affable relationship with them? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Michael Epstein, board-certified plastic surgeon. Our guest is Dr. Peter Adamson, professor of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, and head of facial plastic and reconstructive surgery at the University of Toronto. Dr. Adamson is recognized as an international leader in facial plastic surgery. Welcome, Dr. Adamson. Thank you very much. Nice to be with you. So this is an interesting topic. It's certainly something that comes up frequently in my own practice. In terms of percentages, how many problem patients would you say plague a typical practice? Well, like so many things in life, it's a small percentage, but regardless of what type of practice you have, they are the ones that you remember. I've created something called a patient desirability curve, and the abbreviated comment on that would be that the majority of patients we see, I think in any type of practice, really are fairly good patients. Some are better than others, but most we can manage their physical or psychological issues in order to achieve a good outcome. On the other hand, there may be, let's say, about 5% of patients who within moments of discussing their problems with them, you recognize there may be some significant psychological issues that may not make them a good candidate. And there may be another 5 or 10% that you think, gee, I think their physical issues are such that we aren't going to be able to meet their expectations or make them happy. And that leaves us with maybe let's say 10% or 15% at the outside, that are what I call marginal patients. These are the ones you're just not quite sure about, whether it's from a psychological or physical perspective. And they're the ones I feel you really need to spend more time with during your consultation, maybe even have a second consultation, so you can try to best determine whether they're going to fall into the group you don't wish to operate on, or you feel that, although marginal, you probably can get them a good result. And if you do make a mistake, this is usually the group that you're going to make a mistake with by operating on someone that later on you say, gee, I wish I hadn't. Mm -hmm. Are you finding that this is probably more of a problem that's specific to elective cosmetic surgery versus the patient that would be deemed more reconstructive that has more of a functional need for surgery? Well, I suspect it may be a little bit higher for the elective patient because, after all, they come in generally healthy, generally well. And so they can only, what shall I say, get a really good result to be better, whereas the reconstructive patient, the post-trauma patient, they've already had a certain loss, and they may be much more accepting of a result that's a little bit less than ideal, recognizing, gee, at least I've come a long way back towards normal. So I do believe that aesthetic patients perhaps have higher standards and greater expectations. Do you think that this is a growing problem, or do you think that the problem is fairly static throughout the lifespan of plastic surgery? Yeah. Well, that's an excellent question. And of course, we all only live in our own time zone professionally, as it were. But in reviewing, you know, the older literature, which I tend to do because I do a fair bit of writing and presenting and also just seeing some of the psychological literature around today, it does seem to be that patients today do have higher expectations. The studies of Narcissism, for example, indicate that this seems to be rising a little bit in college students in particular through the 1990s. And people today, of course, in so many realms of life, expect that 
things should be perfect, and if they aren't, then perhaps someone is to blame other than themselves. And of course, if you're a surgeon performing elective surgery, then it's pretty easy to find who must be the person who's caused that problem, since it's not you. So I do believe it's an increasing problem. It's not an epidemic by any means, but I do think we have a very highly expectant and you know very critical type of population. We've lived in a society where exceptionalism, I think, has become almost the norm. And so many patients do have, a, I think, an enhanced sense of entitlement about life in general. And this does fall over into the aesthetic surgery field. Why don't you take us through several typical problem patients? You know, I hate to put you on the spot, but let's see, you know, if you can come up with a couple ones that, you know, a fairly busy plastic surgeon or facial plastic surgeon would see in their office. Right. Well, I think one of the types of patients we not infrequently see, and these are, in fact, at the end of the day, less bothersome than some of the others I might describe, would be the patient having a life crisis. There are quite a few people today, of course, who go through a divorce or lose a job or life is really stressful right now. And some of them feel that having elective uh, cosmetic surgery may help them to you know, get that better job or get a new relationship if they've had a failed relationship. And they may, in fact, be really good candidates. But even good things in life, like getting married, buying a house, what have you, are still stressful. And so for these kinds of patients, I might say, listen, I think you're going to be a good candidate, but life is too stressful for you right now. Why don't you put this off for six or 12 months, and then we can review things, and you'll be able to focus all your energies on the issue at hand, that is getting better from your surgery. I think a type of patient that we see quite frequently is the, quote-unquote, just the unhappy patient. And studies seem to show that, roughly speaking, about 80% in people in general, in the the public, are fairly happy with their lives. And there's about 20% of people who are generally unhappy. And I guess if we all think around amongst our friends and colleagues, we can probably identify people who fall into those two groups. And the point is that people who are generally unhappy, they're glass is always half empty rather than half full. They tend to exaggerate the negatives in their life. And it's much harder to take that kind of person and make them happy with the result of elective surgery because they're generally not happy about most things in life. And so we try to avoid those unhappy people and recognizing that, and I'm sure, you know, all of our listeners know this, that the studies show about 9 or 10% of all, you know, Americans will have a depressive episode at a given time and about that many people, you know, may see a psychiatrist or psychologist in any given year. So this is a pretty common problem that we see and I think we just have to be alert to that in particular. Absolutely. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. I am your host, Dr. Michael Epstein. Our guest today is Dr. Peter Adamson, Professor of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery, and Head of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at the University of Toronto. Would you be able to, or have you ever seen, any type of objective patient scale or way of ranking the patients for measuring these types of problems that may prohibit them from having surgery? Well, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, or the MMPI, has been around for a long, long time. And certainly, even earlier in my career, we actually used an abbreviated form of this to try to identify some of these patients. So I believe this, and there are several other different you know, tools out there. I think, though, that for the surgeon performing elective cosmetic surgery, and in fact, this would pertain to many other elective surgeries. I'm thinking, for example, of infertility treatments or many other things that are really quite elective. I believe the most important thing at the end of the day, rather than looking at these kinds of forms, is to 
you know, read a lot around the psychology related to the types of elective procedures you're performing. And then with experience, I think it very much becomes one of those issues of your gut instinct and, you know, the blink phenomenon. I'm sure many, again, of our listeners have read the book Blink, which really just states that you get a feel. I mean, look at that patient in a subjective sense, just blink and say, do I feel comfortable with this person or not? I think when you're more inexperienced and younger, you sometimes, when you're having trouble establishing a rapport with a patient, you think, well, gosh, what's my problem here today? How come I'm not able to understand better what they're talking about? Why is this not going well? And I think the more experienced you get, you start to realize that, you know, it's not me, it's them. (laughs) And so I have a couple of phrases which I think are particularly applicable to the patient who might have a personality disorder. And sometimes these patients are very hard to thresh out because they don't all come in, you know, with flagrant clinical symptoms. They're often very subtle. And some of these patients, if they want something done, they'll try to hide their history from you or hide some of their symptoms. And also, of course, as we know, many psychological conditions, diseases, they wax and wane. So you see the patient once or twice beforehand when they're healthy and gosh, uh, that doesn't seem so bad. But then they, you know, they wane later on and then you have a patient for life. You only have them once or twice before operation, but you have them for life after. So I use these two expressions. There's something missing. There's just something missing with their personality. Or another expression I ask myself, they just don't get it. And those are real red flags for me to take a step back and say, what am I dealing with here? We used to call it the foot of the bed test. You know, (laughs) step back and take a look at the patient from a whole. Do you have a set number of times that you would actually meet or consult with the patient before actually, you know, putting them on the operating room table? Well, we always meet with our patients at least twice. And our first consultation is usually about, you know, for aesthetic surgery in particular, not for something very minor, but for full assessment of, for example, rhinoplasty or aging face rejuvenation is about 45 minutes long. And that's just with me. And then they also see our staff. So they have even more discussion. And then we always have patients back for what we call a planning meeting. And that time I see them again and they meet all the members of our team and we go through everything. So I think for a patient who's healthy physically and psychologically, that will usually suffice. The patient for, for example, facial rejuvenation who says I have puffy eyelids or sagging jowls and indeed they do and they know what they want or the younger woman, for example, who's 22 and has a bump in her nose and a big bulbous tip, those are fairly straightforward. But we have no limit. If someone, and we stress to patients, they can come back as many times as they like. And there's been, not often, but the rare patient, we might have seen four or five times before we actually proceed to make sure everything is copacetic. Now, I must add that I think the more times that they feel they need to see you, or you need to see them, that's a red flag in and of itself. If they're not able to make a decision about you and surgery, and if you're not able to make a decision about them. Are you noticing that the numbers of problems may vary with the type of procedure? Like, you know, I remember back in training that, you know, you were always to beware of the male rhinoplasty patient. In your practice, do you see that there's a specific type of procedure that these problem patients are coming for? Yes, and I think you've really hit the nail on the head with the male rhinoplasty patient. Now, in reality, most men are excellent candidates for rhinoplasty. They tend to come more, not just for an aesthetic concern, but of course, men tend to have had some more sports injuries or some of them spent a little bit too much time in bars when they were younger. 
And we say when they've become a lover instead of a fighter, that's the time to consider them for rhinoplasty. But it's well recognized that some men who are having sexual identity crises may dissociate their sexual concerns to their nose. And so their nose becomes the big issue. And obviously, a person's sexual identity conflicts are not going to be resolved by performing a rhinoplasty or you know, feminizing a male nose. So that's one high-risk individual. Another one that we see, and it's not common, but in fact, I had a gentleman like this just a few weeks back, and when you see them and you're looking for it, they just hit you on the head with a hammer, and this is the so-called Simon syndrome, S-I-M-O-N, which stands for the single male obsessive narcissistic individual. And these individuals come in and they're just like that. And so these males can be very difficult to please because of their narcissism. Now, that's the male rhinoplasty patient. The female rhinoplasty patient can sometimes be a patient who has a sexual dysfunction as well. If you have a mature woman and you put a nasal speculum in their nose and they recoil with that, this is presuming that you're doing it gently, of course, and, and appropriately, but if they recoil from that, then that's something that you might take as a sign that perhaps, just perhaps, you should delve a little bit further into any issues of sexual dysfunction. Because once again, women, this can be you know, dissociative from the female genitalia to the nose. I think more in the facial rejuvenation patient, I think there we're more concerned about the patient who's a chronic depressive or we get patients who may, again, be a little bit narcissistic and we're worried about those patients and whether we're ever going to be able to make them happy. A type of patient that covers both men and women and is a definite potential problem in both facial contour surgery, that would be rhinoplasty, otoplasty, malarplasty, and less of an incidence in rejuvenation is the body dysmorphic syndrome, which of course there's been much written about. Now, the studies seem to show only 1% to 2% of the general population has obsessive body dysmorphic disorder, but that it may be, may be as high as 10 to 15% in the cosmetic surgery patient. And this makes sense because if someone has body dysmorphic disorder and they want to get it corrected, where are they going to go? Well, they're going to have cosmetic surgery. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Peter Adamson. I am Dr. Michael Epstein. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MDXM-157. And thank you for listening.